Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Greetings, friend. Have you come seeking knowledge of a world that is shrouded in darkness and untold horrors? A world where evil lurks around every corner and only the bravest and most skilled warriors can hope to survive? Or perhaps you seek the refuge of the fireside and be surrounded by humanity tonight. Perhaps a story to pass the time. I am Loder Ibn Lee. A keeper of the old tales. That one with the large array of weapons and deep, knowing gaze is known as Kairi. They are a stalwart and powerful companion, and will not harm you. That other one? Ah, yes. Faience. She is a necromancer of great power, and seeks to aid humanity in our darkest hour. We are the Lore Watch. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Lore Watch. If you didn't tell from the intro, we're going to be talking about Diablo 4 today uh, because, I mean, it is in its early access. It officially releases at the time of this recording in about 25 hours, give or take. Uh, according to the countdown on their site, uh, and we thought it would be a good time to actually talk about the story of the game. That said, there's going to be spoilers therein. So if you don't want the game spoiled for you, uh, maybe skip this episode and come back later. It'll be here waiting for you. But on this journey, I am joined by not only the master barbarian himself, Matt Rossi, we have our special guest who is also super into Diablo, uh, maybe possibly more than we are lately. Uh, and that's our editor in chief, Liz Harper, who uh, has a, what, what, what is your, what are you meaning in Diablo 4 right now? Is it, is it the Necromancer? 
It is. It is indeed the necromancer. I played the necromancer more than any other class so far. Yeah, and it's. I don't know about you, uh, both of you, but I've been having a ton of fun. Like the the to me, like they've nailed the feeling of the classes, and I'm just having a great time. Just even if I'm not actually doing anything, just running around the world and smashing things as a giant mm-hmm. bear because it is just fun. <laughs> It's but, it's satisfying to smash things. That's it's kind of so satisfying. Yes. Oh, I love it. But we're here to talk about that story beats. And Diablo is, 4 is an interesting beast in and of itself because it is the first always-on Diablo game. It is the first Diablo game that they have outwardly said that they plan to continue to release uh, plot and story updates as the game progresses in longevity, which means what we have now is not necessarily the final story. It is, however, the first campaign of potentially many. So I think that's fascinating. And I don't know how you two feel about that. Do you think that that is a good change, a bad change? I mean, it's basically taking what they were doing. Uh, in D3 and, and making it more natural. Uh, they People forget they actually did introduce story in Diablo 3 after uh, Reaper of Souls. It was just weird little story things that didn't have anything to do with anything. They were just like, you know, hey, let's jam in a new dungeon over here and we'll have a crazy cult over there and we'll have a crazy guy who's in charge of the cult. And it's like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Nothing. Just, yeah, there it is. They're a cult. Here's the, there's the story of that cult. And, and oh, and the, the creepy guy following you around is definitely an evil cultist who actually turns out to be a demon. Yeah, Don't worry about it. You're not going to see him again. Just Classic. kill him here and that's it. Classic Diablo trope. Yeah. Liz, so how do you was, feel about it? I think it's great. I think probably for the first time, this is a Diablo game that is really playing into the story and what Sanctuary feels like as opposed to just being an adventurer here to kill demons. And I know we were just talking about how fun it is to go in and like smash, smash, smash. But there's there's a lot more going on in the background. I don't think any other Diablo game has been like this before. What do y'all think? Well, I was going to mention one of the things that caught me up my eye when I was doing my, my playthrough. Uh, I have a barbarian that I play with my wife and I have a barbarian that I play when I'm by myself. Um, so the one I'm playing by myself is further along, obviously. But I keep getting sidetracked. Like every time yeah. I try and just, I try really hard to just blaze through the story, but then I'm like, I'm in uh, what do you call it? Uh, Scott's Glen. And they end up at that keep with the goose. And it looks like it's going to be all funny hijinks. <laughs> uh, it looks like it's all going to be funny hijinks. And then you get told about a weird thing. And next thing you know, like the, everything's on fire and there's crazy people. And this guy's telling you about his life. And it's like, what? Oh my Lord. This is way more in depth and, and quite interesting. Like, I'd say there's almost a, a sub, several sub-themes running through Diablo 4, and one of them is that even really good people who want to do the right thing can can lose something mm-hmm. of themselves in the act of trying to do the right thing because of what you, you know, just because of what it, it takes, the toll it takes on you. And mm-hmm. that whole idea of, you know, what are you willing to do? Like, are you willing to, to go... Like once you once you go to a certain place, once you start doing certain things, you have changed who you are, and you can't just go back. And yeah, there's a lot of that in this. It's just it's really fascinating. And unfortunately, all these subquests are are really interesting, and you end up doing a lot of them, and then you haven't you still haven't finished the game. 
but that's me. I'm still in Act Five. Yeah, there's a there's a that's the other thing about this as well is like there is the main story beats, but oh man, are there so many side quests and so many random things to go find and do? Like you could be heading on your way to go to. Uh, you know, finish the tarnish and the tarnished luster uh, quest line, and then find like four little blue exclamation points along the way that lead you careening all across the map in Act One. And before you know it, you've spent your entire time in Act One chasing down all these side quests and haven't even touched the main quest. But they're all so engrossing. There's so much story, and 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 Liz talked about this on the main podcast, and I think it really is evident. Uh, is just how much the world feels like a world and not just a game setting, which I think Liz, is fascinating. Liz, do you remember the guy with the eyes that you you mentioned to me because I hadn't noticed him? Oh, I do. I do that, remember the guy. That whole that, thing. The guy, without, the guy without the eyes, technically. Yes, yes. Technically, he does not have his eyes anymore. They're still around. So you, he just doesn't have them. Did you actually finish the quest? I cleared out the, uh, the stronghold. Uh-huh. And did you... Did you go back to him after that? No, because, because I was trying to get through the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, let me just tell you, it's it's a lot of things like this where you just run into something. In this case, what Matt's talking about is you're in Kyovashad, which is the main town you start out in. And you go, there's a little area and there's a guy in stocks. And he is, uh, he's complaining, obviously, and he has no eyes. He has no eyes because a witch stole them. And she does terrible things and he sees them. He sees all of them. He sees all of the things she does because she wears his eyes as a necklace. And you go and investigate this and you clear out a stronghold full of cultists. And then you go into a dungeon and you kill the witch and you retrieve his eyes and you you bring them back and everything is fine. And it's a totally happy ending where everything works out. You can't see me right now, but I'm giving her Chuck Sion. <laughs> well, let's... So, uh, I, I mean, so far, that hasn't been my experience in any of the stuff I've finished. Um, like, for instance, uh, the one where you investigate, like, why are there all these werewolves all of a sudden? And it's like, whoa, this went darker than I thought. Uh, and it's a werewolf quest, so I thought it was going to be dark, but it's way darker than I thought it was going to be. And, well, can we, like, let's, Joe, let's, you have the idea of talking about it. Yeah, let's, act, let's, so. let's, let's start from the very beginning, and let's start with the prologue. So the prologue, obviously, the very first thing you get into in the game uh, is with the cinematic, with you losing your your horse, you trying to find shelter and make your way through this this uh, blizzardish storm that's happening, uh, and you find yourself coming into a town, uh, and the town sort of welcomes you and then says, "By the way, we have a problem. Can you go take care of this problem for us?" And you the, know, Adventure Time, the way you yeah. do. Yeah, like an adventurer time. So, like, you know, you think to yourself, okay, this is perfectly fine and normal. And you go and and it does. It starts out very normal where you go and then you find the cave. You go into the cave. You beat up a bunch of fallen. You discover that there are new versions of fallen, some that explode, some that are just really, really big and hit very, very hard. Those, those exploding ones are bad. News. They're you wanna get out of super that. bad. So bad. And then you make your way back to the town like you would the triumphant hero once you've completed everything. Uh, and then, Hooray! Liz, what happens when you get back to the town? Uh, well, they drug you into unconsciousness and then they plan to sacrifice you to their new god, Lilith. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you skipped the party, though. There was a party. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my favorite part of the whole which... thing is when you they like come stay. We have a stew. And then, you know, you feel like rocking out with them, you know, waving your mug around. And- 
then yeah, boom. They they have to drug you somehow. They do it subtly. I mean, it's, it's they put one the of those drug things. in the stew. I assume so. Well, yeah. I it was either the stew or in that mug you're constantly holding around. Uh, but that's kind of one of the insidious things about Lilith going around Sanctuary is, you know, some of her followers seem like normal, reasonable people. Well, and like a- these people, it's like on the outside. Like everything looks normal. It's just normal village. That's the interesting thing, right? Because you are the the whole presentation of this is sort of the the dressing for the story. It's the setup. It's the 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 appetizer course where it's like this is kind of how the world works now. And it's interesting because as you're going through, you might notice that the cinematic you saw maybe a little bit earlier, uh, maybe when you were looking at the reveal of the game, is actually. This is the town. So mm-hmm. as you're dragged into unconsciousness and dragged over to be, um, well, let's just say the sausage, uh, you don't want to know how it's made, <laughs> uh, but you're saved by a uh, a cleric, I guess. I don't know what he actually is, like a clergyman. Some, they, keep something. Saying, they keep saying monk. A monk they of a monk of the Cathedral of Light, Yosef. Uh, who was also drugged and uh, left for dead, but woke up uh, before they could do anything, and then is freeing you. You then yeah, they probably it's it's actually pretty ironic. They probably forgot to deal with him because you showed up, and then they had to get rid of you. Yeah, you you showed up probably as they were dragging him off, right? All according to plan. All according to plan. Uh, then you go through and you bust your way out of the uh, the barn that you are in, and you have to beat up a couple of the crazed uh, villagers to make your way through. Uh, and then you get led through into the center of the town. You find your way to the cathedral that is uh, seen better days. The cinematic plays inside of the cathedral, which is the cinematic we've seen of Lilith coming to the people and basically enticing them to uh, give way to their baser nature, to the their true uh, aspect of themselves and give way to revelry through sin. And then you burn the town down. Because that's that's what you do when you have your face with cultists like that. Well, to be fair, I didn't burn, burn it down. Yosef burned it down. Fair, Yosef burned it down. Yeah. Yeah. To be to be extra fair, you burned down the church where Lilith arrived in, and the town is still there, and you can actually go back to it. There's even a waypoint there and some quests. Yep. Isn't that where you'd find that crazy axe? Yes, it is where you yeah. find the crazy axe. Yeah. The crazy I- axe? You... You find a crazy axe covered in blood and you give it to a clergy person and everything goes completely well. End of story. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's I'm fine. Getting, Everything's I, fine. I don't know if you're just doing this on purpose or if you're deliberately, <laughs> like, would you just leave after you do that kind of thing? Because the follow up quest is I, almost always not that. Sometimes if you get to the very end, it ends okay, but uh, yeah, the game does have a habit of. The short version is you if you end it one quest earlier than you're supposed to, everything is fine, everybody is happy, nothing goes wrong, and you just move on with your life is what I'm hearing. If you don't actually continue the quest after that, everything is sunshine no. <laughs> I, I mean it's, it's interesting how it paints a very bleak world and there's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of bad things that have happened to everyone. And a lot of personal stories of this, not just the overarching story. Yeah. But somehow, a lot of the times you go to the next quest, and it is worse. Mm -hmm. It is actually worse than you thought. What's really weird, though, is that 
this game manages to not be like depressing. Well, there's an undercurrent. Yeah, there's, a, there's, an under, there's an undercurrent of hope through it, right? Well, and I it, think the undercurrent of hope is literally just that you are so freaking stubborn. Like, you know, <laughs> this person that you are playing just will not lay down and die. Like, the entire world that seems to be saying, yes, give up. And well, you're like, no. But, but hold on. The, that's sort of the interesting thing about it, though, is like, that's really not the story. Like, so that's the prologue. After the prologue, you uh, make your way out of town and you wind up finding yourself at a uh, what looks like a abandoned lodge, although it's not really abandoned. You make your way in. You see that there's a bunch of viscera and and skulls and stuff all around the place, and you think to yourself, "You're spoiling for a fight. There's going to be something bad that happens here." Uh, the door then kicks open behind you, and in walks one of the my favorite grumpy old men in the series. Uh, Lorath comes in, uh, who just says, "If you're going to break into my house and root through my stuff, at least stay for dinner," uh, <laughs> which I thought was a fantastic there, line. Yes, oh, the but there is a the thing about that. Dollar. It's like. It, it, like this moment comes right after you've you've eaten dinner with a bunch of crazy cultists who tried to murder you, and mm-hmm. then you're like immediately invited to dinner again, and yep. you're just like, "Yeah, cool. I think I'll have dinner with this crazy old man living in the woods." I don't know if you've noticed, but good decision making <laughs> not not something that Hero of a Diablo game ever what, has actually has. What do I say about <laughs> heroes in the video games that we play? They always make bad decisions. Uh, but I don't even know if these are necessarily bad decisions, but I, I do want to talk about Loroth a little because I think he's kind of endemic of... He embodies something I've really noticed about this game is that when stuff from the previous game shows up, it's it's in a way that lets you feel how much time has actually passed. Oh, yeah. Like what, what, is the, what is the quote that he had? I used to pretend to be a Herodric hero when I was a boy fighting monsters with my wooden sword. That feels like oh, so long ago now or something like that. Yeah, I, I just remember, like, if you played D3 uh, Reaper of Souls, uh, Lorath is in that. Uh, and he's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal, who's a fine mm-hmm. voice actor. He voiced Spider-Man in these PS5 games. Uh, so, yeah, perfectly good actor. But they didn't go with him for this one. And it makes perfect sense that they didn't because this Lorath has been through it. Well, and um, also consider that it's what, 30 or 50 years after 50, Reaper Souls. 50 years. 50 years. 50. It's so 50 he's, years later. He's old. He's very oh, yeah. old. Mm-hmm. He's, he's 70 at the least. And man, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to that act, but there's just an absolutely, I think a perfect moment of him talking to the, the wanderer, which is what your character ends up getting called this time around. Um, there's just a perfect exchange between the two of them that I, I want to bring up, but I really do like mm. Laura's character. I didn't, I was like a little upset. Uh, as my wife pointed out, it kind of sad that we won't have Deckard Kane. but in a way Deckard Kane is a character in this game, even though he doesn't appear, at least he hasn't up to the point I've played in. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't. He's a legend, right? Like he's a legend that has helped to form the, the story of the world. Yeah. Well, and you, you can tell that his, his role, Laura's never even met him. Lorath never met Deckard Kane. Deckard was dead before Lorath even joined the Haradrim. And yet, you can tell that Deckard's influence is all over the Haradrim. Uh, so, yeah, there's. But we, we should probably get to talking about. Uh, well, I want to hear what Liz I has mean, to at, say. Go ahead, Liz. At one, point, at one point later in the game, you've seen this already, I know, Matt. Uh, Laura says, I wonder what old Deckard Kane would say about all this. How would he look at the story? He's still way up there in people's minds. Yeah, and you you know, in a weird sort of way, the the first narrator of the game before Loras starts it up, I'm pretty sure it's mm-hmm. Elias, but I'm not 100 percent on that. But I just I kept redoing his dialogue as 
Deckard Kane, hmm. and it was more fun for me. <laughs> yeah, but the, I think the interesting thing, though, is like because Deckard Kane was always presented in the previous games as a a hero of the people in a lot of ways. Not necess- maybe not necessarily a hero, but on the side of humanity, like he would travel. A man of the people is yeah, a man of the people. He would travel. He would travel. He would share the stories. He would, you know, give tales of hope and bravery. Uh, as well as being a, a keeper of like the old lore, so like he had a lasting effect on those that are are struggling to survive. And I think it's also very telling because as you start making your way from the epilogue to to Act One and start making your way through Act One, which we'll, we'll break into here in a moment, you you really feel how much those stories have maybe informed survival for humanity. Because that's that I think is one of the more interesting things. People know how to fight the monsters. Because people like Deckard Kane shared stories on how to fight the monsters, right? It's not necessarily, you know, just, you know, join the army and go forth and do the thing. But look, here's how, here's the weakness for these creatures. It's like the best way I can frame it for anybody who's not familiar with Diablo series in general is like, it's, he's the Bobby in Supernatural to like the world here. He knows all the lore. Like that's his job, right? Like his job is to figure out how things happen, how things work, share the stories and keep the oral tradition alive. So humanity can keep pressing forward. And that's interesting. Cause you think of the Herodrum as like these huge, like stoic figures of myth and legend that fought the devils. And yeah, they did, but they also gave like in Decker Kane's, part a lasting legacy for humanity survival through the act of storytelling which is just phenomenal <laughs> um but let's break into the the first act here so uh it's uh, oh, sorry go ahead i do want to cut in do we want to talk about rathma's prophecy because that actually oh you know what that comes a up right good, there in the beginning even though that's, that's a good point they tell you that in the prologue though you don't you don't exactly know what it means yet yeah, you know what? Uh, do you want to do you want to read it off, or do you want me to to do it? I uh, I can read it off. I don't have your dramatic announcer voice, but I'll do my best. Go for it. Uh, so it really, really early in the game, you you have no idea what's going on, but you get this prophecy while you're being dragged by Lilith's cultists off to be slaughtered, apparently, and uh, it goes like this. I saw my corpse, and from my mouth crawled hatred. A father burned his children on a pyre, and a mother molded a new age from the ashes. I saw the weak made strong, a pack of lambs feasting on wolves. Tears of blood rained on a desert jewel, and the way to hell was torn asunder. Then came a spear of light, piercing hatred's heart, and he who was bound in chains was set free. Which is very telling for stuff that happens. <laughs> yeah, but it's also set up. Something I really like about this prophecy is it's set up in such a way that you can understand why the people who misinterpret it did so, mm-hmm. which I liked. I like that for once, it's not just, you know, hubris. Sure. But there's, a. it sounds like it would, could mean that. So yeah, it is really interesting. And I mean, you, you do see some interesting things with this. Uh, just because you see the cathedral light takes it, you know, in one very specific way, and you see Lilith's followers taking it in almost the opposite way, except they're both reading the same words. They're yeah. they're both reading what they want. And and true to Rathma's uh Rathma's person, neither of them are right, neither of them are wrong. It's really interesting. But like, yeah, that prophecy is so it's interesting. It's interesting that they present it to you. Um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. 
there's a movie that I really like, and I, I know both of you have seen it, the original thing. Um, mm. And at the beginning of the movie, if you speak... Wait, the 50s one? The, well, not, not the original, the, the, okay, the remake right. from the 80s. You, you confused me. I'm like, really? That does Sorry. not sound like a movie you'd be all that into. Um, if you speak Swedish, they tell you how the movie ends in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> and it's an interesting cinema fact, but like Diablo's sort of doing the same thing. Like, it's laying the path with this prophecy in the first 20 minutes of gameplay, 30 minutes of gameplay, like, or hour. I forgot how long it took to get there. Right. They're laying down how this game is going to play out before you even start really playing the game. And one, that's ballsy AF. Uh, And two, (laughs) I think it's well done because, like Matt pointed out, it can be interpreted so many different ways. But as you progress through the various acts and the, the chapters of this particular story, you start to see what it actually means and how it unfolds. And and the, there are these revelation moments where I don't know about YouTube, but like I'm saying like, oh, oh, yeah. OK, oh, that that's going to be horrible later. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Act two, uh, in my opinion, was the one where I really it managed to blindside me and I saw it coming at the same time. Yeah. Like and it's just one of those things, but we should talk about. Yeah, act let's one. let's talk about Act One. So Act One, Lorath uh, basically says, "Come follow me. We're going to go and uh, we're going to go talk with the the Church of Light, uh, and we're going to do it because they might make useful allies. I don't actually believe that they can be trusted, uh, so keep your wits about you. Uh, but we could probably at least use them." He also immediately ditches you at the oh, beginning yeah, of the act. One hundred percent. He's going off to do something else. You okay. take care of this random stranger I met in a blizzard. Yeah, before before uh, there's one moment here that I think it really sums up uh, Lorath. Not only does he ditch you, he makes you go buy back his pole arm. Yeah, and and you know that he pawned off I probably for booze money. He makes you get it back <laughs> for him, and so and you go and you're like, hey, Lorath says he wants this thing back. He goes, great, you'll have to pay for it. They don't. The game doesn't charge you a lot of money, but it's just the the sheer hubris of this man he's just met you and he's like yeah go go fetch my stick uh, it's also yeah. i mean you get some really character defining moments for lorath right here in the beginning you when you first walk into kiovashad with lorath there is they want you to do a cleansing ritual where you write the name of your biggest sin on like a piece of cedar and you burn the piece of cedar and now a great weight has been lifted from your shoulders. And you walk into the gate and Lorath is like, yeah, they do this stupid ritual, whatever. And he like walks on through. He's like, no, I don't have time for this. And But the guard at the gate makes you do it. And then you you do it. You walk inside, you go find Lorath. And Lorath, like, no matter what you write on the on that piece of wood, uh, Lorath guesses what it is. You know, he's like, ah, whatever. But he guesses. You've got this look at Loreth as someone who is very perceptive. But mm-hmm. then immediately he does that thing Matt was talking about where he sends you off to buy his weapon. And he doesn't even think. He doesn't, he has no, like, personal consideration for other people. He's like, yeah, go get my weapon, whatever. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that, you know, we're on a mission from God thing from the Blues Brothers, but in a, you know, in a Diablo <laughs> way. But very much that he's so focused on even when he went up to the mountain and, and, you know, was hiding from the world, he still is that person who just, he, he, there's a note on his table when you get in there and it's like, they've recently been converted short fangs. And it's like, you realize he's talking about vampires. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> but he's just he's just casually writing about you know some vampires he dissected while he's out in the woods, like he's gone camping. Uh, and and so yeah, like Liz points out, he just takes off. He goes he he wants to know who the pale man is, uh, and we should talk about that really fast. Um, the pale man is Lilith's confederate who you've seen briefly. If you watch the original cinematic from 2019 or the intro cinematic, as you start the game up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the intro from then it's still there, but he's also there in the cinematic that Joe was talking about in the church. Uh, cause he comes in and he's like, yes, mother. And everyone's would be, this would be, that would be in the prologue. So you first kind of, you see him in the intro cinematic and then you see him again, there helping Lilith in both cases. And the, the, when you described him to, to Lorath, he was like, I got to go. And he immediately takes off, which, you know, ter- comes up later. Uh, he mentions another Haradrim that you could possibly go talk to. Uh, that's an act two. And then he says, but you should go to the church. Like Liz said, I honestly felt like the church was fascinatingly creepy. Uh, yeah, very Liz, much so. Liz mentioned uh, the carpeting. If you want to talk about that again. Yeah. Talk about the carpet. Well, the, the, the thing that it told you about them, that I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, okay. I mean, the environmental design in the world is really amazing. And there is detail. When you walk into the Cathedral of Light in Kyovashad, there's a red carpet, you know, going up to the altar with like gold embroidery. And you can tell in Kyovashad, it's very, it's perfectly clean. It's not entirely unwrinkled, but it's mostly neat and orderly kind of in this main cathedral. But if you go to kind of what is more of a stronghold in Corvalar, you see the carpet up at the entry. It's the same carpet, but it's covered in mud from people tromping it out. There's a war table inside and you can tell knights have been tromping it out. The carpet is wrinkled and it's covered in mud and footsteps. I mean, you get this sense of place just by looking around at the world. And there are a lot of little details that you see everywhere. And sometimes when you start thinking about them, they're really horrifying. Yeah. And I think that that right there is an interesting point. Cause I think to me, this is where act one really starts to, to show you how the world works and what the place mm-hmm. of everything is in it. Right. And I think that's one of the most important things. Like you're talking about right. the, the, the cathedral. Go ahead. Sorry. I want to jump in with one tiny thing that I don't know if y'all have noticed. You can play through the first three acts in any order you like. Yes, mm-hmm, I did. You could go, yeah, you could go straight to act three and then do act two and then do act one. You could do them complete in reverse order if you wanted to. Yeah, which is really interesting is if you talk to people, like, because I've done it on two different characters. On uh, the first one, I went act one, act three, act two. And the mm-hmm. second one, I went, Act one, act two for most of it, then stopped at a certain point and did some of act three and then went back to act two. And when you talk to people, like when you talk to Prava that you, you've seen Dornan, but before, you know, before the really bad thing happens to Dornan, she just goes, yes, yes, just blows it off. But she does respond. There's that there's extra dialogue where you can tell her that you spoke to him. Or if you talk to Lorath after the, the bad thing happens, he's like, yeah, it's horrible. And, that's, and the t- dialogue changes depending on how far along you are in the other mm-hmm. acts. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. really well done. That is actually one of the things I noticed pretty pretty soon, pretty early in in my gameplay. I was like, "Whoa, okay, that that was interesting." I got to see if if I got to see if that happens in another playthrough. The, the and uh, one thing I will say one thing to pay attention to as you are playing through the game. Once you finish the game. You can go back to these places you started in and people will have some very different responses for you. Mm -hmm. 
just, I mean, just not even important story stuff, but like NPC chat, you can tell, okay, something has happened here and the world has changed. And that happens throughout the game. If a big story beat happens, you can go back and see things are different. NPCs have a different view of the world. Different things are happening in the world. Yeah, I think in Act 1, a really good example of that is when you go, uh, when you follow the, the first thread of everything and you end up going underground. To, should we, yeah, we should just give that up. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Basically, what happens is you go to talk to the uh, Cathedral of Light, to the Reverend Mother Prava, who's, she's so hardcore believer that she has her scalp tattooed. You know, this, this woman's serious. <laughs> um, and, and you hear about how Inarius cured her when she was a sick child and and, you know, she, she tells us about, you know, her faith and she's very, very in, she's very, very big on faith. Faith is very important to her. Um, you go there and, and she says, you know, we got this message. I was going to send Lorath to check it out, but I guess I'll send you um, since he didn't show. And your buddy, jo- Yosef, the guy that like clubbed a dude for you is really mad that, that, uh, that he, Lorath didn't show you up. You get the goes, impression that he doesn't like Lorath. Yeah, and I'm not surprised. I mean, if you're you know if you're a functionary in a church, I can't imagine anybody who'd bug you more than Lorath. Um, but yeah, so so they basically send you to like go look up this this mine. It's close to to where you were in to Nevask. It's like one town. Ta- it's like one little ta- hamlet over. And go check that out and see what's going on. Uh, you go down. You 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 meet up with this little girl who's like been not really the little girl. I don't know how old she's supposed to be. Like. 15, 12? I, I, I would say a teenager. Yeah. I don't know. When how, they keep calling her a child, but she's, she's gotta be a teenager at least. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Didn't, it didn't feel like a, like a small child, uh, but she yeah. shows up. Her name's Narel. She's coming back in the, in later. So you should probably try to remember her. Uh, she's she's like, you know, important. Yeah. You let my mother through. So, you know, you, you, aren't you responsible for her? And it comes out that the guy in question, his name's Vigo. Uh, took a bribe to to let her pass, and it wasn't even a good bribe. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a sad bribe. It's like a a, a lucky a lucky charm. It's like a yeah, like a necklace yeah. or something. He, she she gave mm-hmm. him like you know just a she gave him like a knickknack, and he was I, like, oh wow, we, okay. We we should point out that the the mines they're going into is has been closed on the orders of Reverend Mother Prava herself. That no one is supposed to come or go. Yeah, and we find out why. Uh, do you want you want to go from here, Liz? Please. Uh, okay. I mean, as the as the necromancer of the group, this is kind of my yep. <laughs> my moment. Except one thing that really disappoints me is that necromancers have like no special dialogue here, <laughs> like nothing. It's very sad. Uh, but you go down, you go through the mines, but under the mines there are, there are some ruins, some very old ruins. You're going into the necropolis of the firstborn. Which does seem to be exactly what the name suggests. It looks like a tomb for ancient Nephilim. And as you go through, you see these visions of Lilith. Lilith has been going through ahead of you, uh, looking for Rathma. Looking for Rathma, the first of her children. And uh, you go through chasing Lilith. You uh, uh, you meet some... Should we should we go straight to the end? Do we need to talk yeah, about the middle here where I you're running you can, around going back and forth? I think you can go straight to the end. So uh, this happens, that happens, and do you finally get to the uh, into this kind of the heart of the necropolis, and uh, you see Rathma dead on the ground because uh, uh, Inarius. Okay, 
you know, we've got we've got the the Rathmus prophecy where he talks. It starts out. I saw my corpse. Mm-hmm. I saw my corpse, and from my mouth crawled hatred. So yes, you go in, and there is Rathmus corpse, and uh, you see Lilith coming, and he's already dead when Lilith gets there. Lilith comes and takes a key to hell off of his body. And you learn that actually Inarius killed him because Inarius wanted the key to hell. Because, of course, Inarius looked at this prophecy and reads it as about him. He is the one who is going to have a spear of light that will pierce Hatred's heart, which he reads as Lilith. He's going to kill Lilith and in so doing, be redeemed to the heavens. He will get to go home. And he's... He's real focused on this. This is like his only interest in life, very well, clearly. And and because we in for context, if you if you haven't listened to our previous episodes of Diablo lore, one, what are you doing? Go ahead and do that. Uh, two, it's because he was essentially banished. Right, he was given up mm-hmm. as part of like a a deal to sort of like keep things uh, copacetic. Uh, isn't really the right word, but to keep things from escalating further. He was given yeah, over. Yeah, see, basically, like a- you know, you know, let me do a real quick recap of the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lilith, as we've mentioned, is Mephisto's daughter, the daughter of hatred. Inarius was a not a member of the Injurious Council, but an archangel who was you know supporting them and you know advising them. He got really tired of the eternal conflict, which is the war between the angels and de- demons. We did a put. You don't want me to try and recap that whole thing, but. He was pretty fed up and he wanted it to end, but he had no idea how. He got captured by a couple of demons, but Lilith saved him before they could kill him uh, because she had a plan. And she was also sick of the eternal conflict. So the two of them uh, basically got together with this this scheme where they went and recruited other members of various angels and demons to join them in their little act of rebellion. And they went to the pandemonium fortress, which is where most of the eternal conflict was being waged because there was an artifact in it called the world stone or the eye of Anu. And the world stone was called the world stone because it could literally make worlds. But usually what they do is they'd make a world with the world stone and it would fall apart as soon as someone stopped concentrating on it. Uh, But Lilith had an idea and Inarius linked to the world stone and the two of them, they stole the world stone by creating sanctuary. That's why they keep calling Lilith the mother of sanctuary in this game. It's quite literal. It's not just that she is the mother of, of humanity. Essentially. She's literally the mother of sanctuary. The world wouldn't exist if she hadn't come up with the idea. Um, So they made the world and took the world stone into it, which apparently somehow affected it like we don't know if it's because the world stone was inside of it or because they were thinking beings inside of it or because it was a creation of two halves of the original divine entity that willed it into existence yeah we don't know but we do know that this is the one world that someone made with the world stone and it kept going um so they made sanctuary and and they tried to hide from the eternal conflict uh and apparently lilith and anarius were a lot closer back then uh because Lilith got Anarius to help her conceive a child in the way that you think people do, except it was an angel and a demon. So I'm not sure what was going on, but nevertheless, uh, they had Rathma who at the time was named Lenarian and he was the first of the Nephilim. Uh, the other Nephilim, we don't know who their parents are, were like, we know that there was Fiacla Giar, uh, Bull Cathos, Eshu and others. We don't know how they came to be. Like, we don't know if, if they were also Lilith's children. 
Like if, if Inarius and Lilith had multiple children or if the other angels and demons also had children, it's implied that the other angels and demons also had children. And that's where the first generation of Nephilim come from. Not just uh, Lilith and Inarius, but Lilith and Inarius's was the first and obviously plays an incredible important role in this game. But as you, as Liz says, Inarius is so up his own butt as Lorath put it, (laughs) Lorath, Lorath once said it really well. He's like, well, it turns out that being tormented in hell for thousands of years turns you into an arse. Yep. And, and that's, that's scenarios. He is, he is such, when he talks to your character, he basically just no sells you. Like he just does not care what you have to say. He doesn't care that you're looking to stop Lilith because he figures, oh, I'm just going to go to hell and kill her. I don't have to care about this. Yeah. Yeah. So. He's so tied into the prophecy. He fully believes the prophecy. He fully believes the prophecy is about him and Lilith. That it's like, it doesn't even matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter that you're chasing Lilith. It doesn't matter that you're asking for his help in something that he would conceivably like to have done. Because, hey, there's this prophecy. The prophecy's going to happen. I'm just going to sit here and wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really interesting, too, because um, Inarius isn't just a jerk. Although he is absolutely a jerk. Uh, he, I mean, and Andy isn't just a person who kills his own son in a fit of pique. Which well, he also because is. his, don't forget, because his son is decidedly neutral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, is, like, you know, that is an important, important thing to, to, to hear. Rathma being the, you know, first of the necromancer uh, in being trained by essentially it was Tragul, right? Yep. Being mm-hmm. trained by Tragul uh, is an agent of balance, is an agent of neutrality. There is no, there is no picking a side, and so that kinda is not exactly good when you have Anarius who is just like, yeah, but we're gonna go. I'm gonna go back to heaven. I know what side of this battle I'm on. It sort of creates a, a little bit of friction with you know between father and son. Just the best part of that whole exchange, which you see in flashbacks as you're running through trying to catch up to Lilith, who is of course already gone, uh, is you see. Um, Inarius talking to Rathma and just keeps making demands and, and Rathma keeps trying to explain to him it's not how this works like if you get the key it's because you take it off my corpse because that's how someone gets the key you know it, it is I die and then someone loots my body you know, that, that is how this is going to work so if you are going to get the key it's because you, you take it off my corpse and apparently Inarius was like stabity then because i want that key uh and he I, didn't that find also, it yeah that implies that he stabbed his son and then is like okay where's the key and he's like looking for the key and he can't find it because he never gets the key lilith takes the key off of rathma yeah so it doesn't say much for his intelligence level i mean he's so focused on this and he one of the things he tells rathma is that his fate is his own but at the yeah. same time, he is so glued to this prophecy, even though, you know, he kind of missed a step there because he did not find the key to hell. Somebody in the game later makes a good point about Inarius that I will try to bring up when we get there. Um, but yeah, Inarius is Inarius is very clearly not playing this game. Like the, if you've played Diablo games before, the angel you're most familiar with is Tyrael. And Tyrael is kind of sets a high standard for what angels are like. <laughs> Inarius does not meet it. No, not even close. I mean, we've met some other angels, and they're kind of, most of them are jerks. And sometimes calling them jerks is like, 
kind of underselling because angels, angels don't really, they aren't really interested in humanity any more than demons are. They aren't interested in helping they're actually us. Le- they're significantly they're just- less interested in humans than demons are. Because demons are like, ooh, soul food and stuff we can use to fight things. And dangerous are like, just burn them. Just burn them all. It's disgusting. They, they're horrible monsters. Kill them. So, yeah, it's it's kind of... Tyrael was like the best angel, it turned out. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. By a long shot. So, yeah, you basically go through Act 1 trying to catch up to Lilith. Uh, also doing a whole lot of quests in the in the Fractured Peaks because, man, there, there's a lot of quests in the Fractured Peaks. And... It's like, I, mm, go ahead. I, I want to jump in here with a tiny thing. And you actually brought this up in chat the other day is how big Sanctuary is. Mm-hmm. How big of a game Diablo 4 is compared to the previous games. Just the landmass you have to explore. And the game really encourages you to explore with all the side quests and little hidden things. The map is huge. There is There are so many places to go. And if you just follow the main story, you are just seeing a tiny bit of it. This place is vast, and the mm-hmm. amount of story in it is also vast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like Joe said uh, just before we started recording, um, I think it, 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 he was talking about if you if you stop and, and follow like one of the the quests, like you take the first part and then like just follow it and keep doing it, you will like find yourself ten quests deep in this really complicated story that is really not related to Lilith and her thing mm-hmm. at all. It's just it's like there's there's one guy when you when you leave uh, Kyovishad to get to Reverend Mother Prava because you need to get a blessing in order to cross the Black Lake. It, it's there's like, the usual role playing stuff where you got to you got to get a thing to do mm-hmm. a thing. But you're on your way north, and you see a guy at the side of the road, and he's just kind of like ranting. And he like, "What's what, you okay?" And he's like, "No, my dead son keeps coming. He must. He they took him to the asylum for his crimes. Now he won't leave me be." So you know, you you being you, you're like, that's, "All right, sure." The asylum for the crazy. That's people. also that's also a quest that, as you play through it, it gets worse. It starts oh, yeah. out with this uh, this father being haunted by his son. And you you literally see the ghost of his son standing right there. Father, won't you come and visit me? Please come At and the visit Black me. Asylum. <laughs> but yeah, with a name like that, I'll be there tomorrow. But yeah, you get there, and I'm just going to tell you guys what happens. Yeah. Uh, you get there, and it turns out that the kid's like, he lied, he lied, he lied. And he's, you, you have to put him down because, you know, ghost. Uh, but you, you, you get that done. You're like, I'm got a bad feeling about this. And you go back to the, to, to the guy who's also the voice actor is Simon well, Templeton. Let me, let me interrupt you for just a second there. If you go through and explore the entire dungeon, you see there, there's some, the, like there's a journal or something you can find mm-hmm. where they talk about, okay, where the asylum is closing. So let's just go out and lock the doors and these animals can just fend for themselves. And you can yep. see in the environment there that it's like they've left all of the prisoners, all of the people in the asylum have just been left to starve to death. Yeah. Locked which is like up. And one of all the worst of the ways imaginable. Lock yeah. the doors. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. And so surprise, there are a lot of angry ghosts. Tons. Oh, yeah. So many. Yeah. 
but so when you finally get back after going to the incredibly happy black asylum, I'm not, I don't know why we don't go there every day. Uh, you get back to the guy and he's like, but my guilt continues. You know, after you like, you know, yeah. So I, I killed your son's ghost. So I guess I killed him again. He's like, but my guilt continues. I still hear him calling me because I'm the one who committed the crimes. He went to the asylum for, I let my son die. It's like, basically this guy framed his kid for like probably something really, really bad. And that's let, not actually how I read it, but oh, that's how I read it. Because he says he was there for my crimes. He says I, that. I mean, I, mm, I, so, yeah, I took it a different is, way. You can, he, take it, you can take it different ways too, which is what happens in a lot of these quests. But whatever, he goes off to go to the asylum, which is certainly going to lead to his death. There's no chance he's living through this experience. He is going to die in there because all those ghosts are going to come out and rip him in little pieces. And you're like, okay, I guess, well, thanks for the quest reward before you do that. Wow. Okay, well, I'm sure that, that when I go down to the hollowed ossuary, that won't be depressing. Oh, my God. And it's just, it is amazing how the, this game manages to not be depressing. I, I should note that you, I, so it's like you meet the guy and his son, and then it's like you carry on down the road, and then you get a quest from a dying knight to go to the hollowed ossuary, which, yes, is also a terrible place. Yeah, you it's, just keep these breadcrumbs to terrible things that can completely pull you off of the main story. Yeah, and uh, the Fractured Peaks is is not unique here, but I think Act 1 really Act 1 does an amazing job of setting up what you are going to be experiencing in this game. Uh you you know, you're going to be heroic, you know, you're going to be the hero of the story, but there's absolutely going to be a ton of awful stuff. And it's sort of I said before about that idea of, you know, good people trying to do the right thing. Even and, if, even if it's not just good people doing the right thing, it's it's people trying to survive. And I think that's what the act one does a really good job of setting up in general. Like let's, we, we really haven't gone into it and we're, we're going to be running out of time because there's so much to this game. We're going to have to do multiple episodes. Um, <laughs> hope you don't have your weekends planned. Liz. <laughs> uh, the, the idea though, that like why people are joining these cults or why people are susceptible to Lilith's message, right? Because that's, that's the thing that I think is really portrayed early on is yeah. Humanity has been used to fighting against the, the, the greater evils, the lesser evils, demons and things like that. But when Lilith pops up, Lilith doesn't have that same fear factor. She does initially like people will recoil and maybe run away, but her message is trying to get humanity to almost raise up and take back sanctuary. Yeah. The line in the who, prophecy that, she, that Liz read, uh, you know, the sheep lambs will become wolves. Yeah. She uses it quite skillfully. And, and who, if you're in that, if you're living in that world, you're living in these like pockets of humanity where like literally 10 feet outside your gate, if you open it, there could be a, a massive Wendigos just ready to just eat your face. You know, why wouldn't that be a message that you would latch on to? And like going back to what Liz and Matt were talking about, that this game isn't depressing. It It is depressing, but it's overshadowed by people latching on to hope. And Lilith's message is one shrouded in hope for the average person. If I give into these sins, if I unlock the power that's within me, I don't have to live in fear anymore. I don't have to worry about the monsters beating down the door because I'm the monster staring back at them. And it becomes, 
there's also an interesting thing here too. Um, I think that you, you guys will both probably have noticed this, but in a very real way, the cathedral of light that we see in this game, it's not the Zacharum church. No, uh, you will. You will see Zacharum later. Yes. Um, but the cathedral of light is Inarius's exact inversion of what Lilith is. Yes. Doing. I was just going to get there. Please go ahead. Explain why. Well, basically, like the Lilith Lilith's uh, doctrine, and we can talk about how sh- how she does or doesn't live up to it. But her doctrine is one where the strong must be allowed to be as strong as they can be to defeat hell. This must be like a personal empowerment thing. Like seriously, that is her message: is personal empowerment, no matter what. Like if you have to kill people, do it. Whatever you have to do to get as powerful as you can, because the, you know this thing is coming. The lords of hell are coming. Meanwhile, Inarius is is like, you can't be trusted to wipe your own butt. Your people are weak and foolish, and you should just listen to me and do what I tell you, because that's the only way you're getting through this. You're just, look at you. You're just constantly sinning. You're just awful. And and that's like, that that cinematic from the very beginning in the prologue, it's, it's of a, a cathedral of light priest who is berating the people of the town for, for sinning. And they're all sitting there in the pews like, Oh, here we go again. And then when Lilith shows up at first, everyone's terrified, but then she starts talking and it's like, yeah, yeah, we are beautiful. F that guy. And things fall apart for him after. And one of one thing you never see Lilith directly herself doing acts of violence. Oh, mm-hmm. I mean, Lilith, Lilith is always calm and collected and she's just she's just out here speaking the truth. She wants to empower humanity to fight the lords of hell. And that's another counter with Anarius who like when you go to talk to Anarius, it's like he's very terse with you and he just kind of turns around and says this this is concluded. This conversation is concluded. And he doesn't talk to you anymore. And you go, when you return from that conversation, talk to Prava, she's like, oh, well, I I know his ways. That means he approves of you because you're still here and you're alive, which sort of suggests that people go to Inarius for help or advice or a conversation and he just kills them yeah. or injures them or maims them. Mm-hmm. There's which- definitely... Which coincides with the lore, because who was one of the ones that wanted to vote to kill all of humanity and all the Nephilim? Narius. Well, no, no. He no. Technically speaking, he didn't. Uh, that's. It's kind of more like he was the one saying, "Let's all calm down. Let's take a step. Let's let's relax." I think feel like tempers are getting. Lilith, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just killing everybody. It's like that scene where you know the kids running and they, "Hey, what are you doing? What are you running with? A knife." It's like that, except Lilith was killing all the angels and demons that wanted to kill the Nephilim. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, you're totally dead on that. An- Anarius. Well, let's talk about Vigo really fast um, before we run out of time. In that scene, that when you are trying to figure out what's going on and you are trying to get the Cathedral of Light to do anything useful, uh, you keep running into that Vigo guy that that took the bribe to let the woman and Lilith through. And, and it's pretty. It's pretty clear as you go that he's in trouble with the church. This is like a big sin. This is a big problem. And he's really anxious about it. Not in part because, okay, he's probably going to lose his job over this. And sanctuary isn't a great place. Probably not a good place to go without having a regular salary. But also he feels really guilty because Knights died because he let Lilith and Nyril's mother into this mine. And mm-hmm. also beyond that, he's a pale knight, which are servants of Anarius. Yeah, 
yeah, he he believes this stuff. He just there's one point where you find him praying and even says, "Yeah, so what if I like to gamble? It doesn't make me a sinner." And, and it's like you you get this real glimpse in a in a lesser game, he would have been disposable. Mm. He would have been just some guy who does a dumb thing, but you get to see him living with what he's done. You get to see and- the other knights and not all the knights, some of the knights are really mad at him, but some of them are like sympathetic to him. Like the the door yeah. guard when you when you get to the cathedral, the door guard says, uh, "Vigo, good luck." And you, and you get a lot of that kind of. It's like it's little bits. It, they don't like they don't spend all their time on it, but it's there. I mean, there's some nuance in that. When you first meet Vigo, it's like, ugh, this jerk. He just took a bribe, and now he doesn't want to help us. And you kind of get halfway through the mine, and things are looking bad. And he's like, "I gotta go." This is this is really bad, and I have to leave and get some more knights, and I've got to. Prava will know what to do. Sorry, you're on your own, and you're kind of like, man, this guy is a huge jerk. He only cares about his skin and his job, and he's just he bailed on us. But as you keep going through, you see these little moments with him where it's like he feels really guilty about the knights who died down there on his watch because he let these people through. He feels really bad and he wants to make amends and it's it's kind of he wants to make amends so badly that things go very badly for him yeah i i will say that to me the the message of the show the symmetry of i mean sorry game the symmetry of these two characters that are driving this plot is revealed when you see while you are fighting to get past this tomb guardian that Lilith has left behind and she's clearly left it behind. Once you actually get in there, she's left it behind because that's her son's body in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not even, she didn't leave it behind because, you know, to stop you or delay you. She said, literally that's her son's body. And she clearly has feelings about that. Liz pointed that out. Actually. I had missed it the first time. What she says when she's like observing the corpse, when she comes upon it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good Liz. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the demon is even named Lilith's Lament or something of that. Yes, nature. yeah, yeah. Title. Mm-hmm. So you go in there, and like suddenly, this big what looks like almost a robot shows up, and it's even telegraphed a bit. They they do a little bit of pre- of like you know setting it up when you're like going to see Prava, and you can stop and ask a guy, "What is with that giant suit of armor?" He's like, "This is no armor. It's a magic relic." Few people even understand how to make this work. And, and when that thing shows up and he- it helps you, it's like putting a barrier around you when, when the boss is doing evil things. And then once you get the boss down, you can lift the helmet thing, which is, first off, if you ever give your giant medieval magic robot the head from, from Silent Hill, like you made, you, get, you made him pyramid head. That, that is not good. <laughs> uh, but when you lift it up, it, it's Vigo in there and there's like spikes driven into his body. The thing is powered by his agony. Like it's killing him. In fact, he dies. He dies because he put this thing on and that's how Inarius treats his people. It is also literally like you can see the armor is completely full of blood. Vigo mm-hmm. is yep. inside the armor in just a massive pool of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so- and it's that's, that's Inarius. That's how he views people. I want to I want to pose one something thing, here. Oh, go ahead. I mean, one thing I think is interesting, and maybe y'all will have more context on this, is the power of blood. This this blood yeah. magic that seems to carry through the game. So, if you oh, go on, 
I was going to say, I have, I have an interesting theory about that. And I was going to pose this as a question for, for you two, particularly Liz, because you've played more of the game at this point than we have. Also, by the time we do our second recording, Matt and I should be done with the story in theory. Um, <laughs> but there seems to be finally an inkling of what Lilith's sort of purview is as far as demons go, because we know that demons, uh, at least the greater and lesser demons, all share like an aspect of sin or an aspect mm-hmm. of some great evil, whether it's terror, or hatred, uh, whatever the case is, but they're all like extreme versions of sort of that distilled idea. Lilith almost seems like she is a distilled representation of love through blood. And what, what I mean by that is sort of like, she feels so keenly attached to that, which is essentially her own, that she will do whatever to protect it in such an extreme mm-hmm. manner that that is sort of like her aspect. Like there, there's this old philosophical question and Matt may remember who said it. I can't remember who off the top of my head, but there was this whole debate of is love a sin. And I think Lilith in her representation in this game is sort of starting to answer that question. And I was Tertullian, by the way. Was, thank you. Uh, See, I knew Tertullian. I knew he. I knew he would know. <laughs> he argued that it was. Yeah, and, but it, but I feel that I feel that's interesting here because of how the light is portraying or how the light view, uh, the Church of Light views her. Like when you deal with Prava and you you talk with Prava about it the reaction, the visceral reaction to it, when you see the cultists of Lilith, the ones that she's touched, how they react to it. And going back to what Liz was talking about, that scene where she comes across Rathma's body, like you feel sort of keenly this, like she does legitimately feel connected to humanity and the Nephilim and what aspect that takes and how that evolves throughout the game sort of like informs what she is technically an aspect of. And I think that's represented through like the blood magic, which is a central theme of the game. Uh, the well, blood petals of Lilith, the, the blood magic, finding the fonts of blood. If you look at the demons that are actually coming into the world as a game mechanic, they're not born through hellfire. They're born through sigils of blood, like which is absolutely fascinating to me. And I think I don't know if that's something you guys picked up on, but there's almost a squelchy nature when a demon comes into the world. <laughs> well, I mean, I- go ahead. The thing I think is really interesting is you see this blood magic used by both sides. So when Lilith is working her way into this temple, it's like she's doing a ritual to cross the lake and get into the necropolis of the firstborn. And she says, blood is the key. There are these runes written out in blood. There's like a dead priest before you get there. So they could have blood to make the runes to cross the lake. And, but you also see the Cathedral of Light using blood in the same way. This suit that Vigo was wearing with the spikes in it, it's, uh, if you talk to someone about it, it's like, it's powered by faith, is what mm-hmm. he says. It's powered yeah. by faith. It's not the guy, moved the by the body, yeah. but by faith. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, I don't know if that's faith. That is blood. That is, you know, it's this power in blood. And if you look at the iconography in the cathedral, this is more of those game details. You see art pretty regularly of a woman holding a chalice of blood with a drop of blood floating over it right in front of the big cathedral of light. You know, a big, you know, kind of starburst thing in the floor, but it has a drop of blood in the middle. Yeah. There's, and there's also a side quest in Kiovashad you can yeah, do. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 one with the confessor. Yeah, um, 
the actress. No, it, no, uh, Sister Octavia. Yes, yeah, she's actually. She's yes, and you can go through and help her, and she's doing this ritual, and it involves cutting her hand and putting blood into a chalice to exorcise demons. Yeah, and you'll and notice like, that she's she calls out to Inarius to purify her blood when she's using it. And that's what I think is interesting. Well, Blood let's, magic goes back hold, 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 all the way. I was going to say real quick, don't forget how the game starts. The game starts by using blood of three willing or close enough to willing participants to summon Lilith back from the void. Blood yes, is literally watch, the key. Yes, I mean, that's exactly what they say. Back in that very first cinematic, blood is the key. Blood was the key to opening the door, and it was also the key to summoning Lilith. They needed the blood of the willing. And you see three people went into that tomb, and all three of them were sacrificed in order to bring Lilith into being. Blood is the key. And you see that over and over again, but not just from the demons. You see that in the cathedral as well. Well, I mean, I think that goes back to the origins of humanity in the first place in Mm -hmm. the game. Because humans are born out of the mixture of angelic and demonic. They they have both. Mm -hmm. That's how Malthiel almost killed humanity killed 90 percent of us uh by by exploiting that by trying to pull the de- he pulling the evil the demon out of people with the black soul stone and of course you pull half of a person's soul out they die but that blood the blood contains power because it contains both angelic and demonic the original church of zacharum used to say all the time the light is in you it doesn't come from somebody else it's inborn it's in you and you see blood magic there's blood magic in diablo 2 like the countess shows up in Kanduras. Yeah. She's doing blood magic. Yeah. And it's like, look at all the torture devices was- in the in the old mm-hmm. monastery. They were doing blood magic. In in you know, and you see that there's like it is really fascinating to think about how this all ties into that whole idea of Lilith's way to win the war was to create the, well, the Nephilim. But it makes sense and- though when you consider how well again, the origins of angels and demons when they derive themselves from Anu or Tothamet, uh, or I'm sorry, the Diamond Warrior or Tothamet, where Anu was the first entity that was originally the combination of both of them, humanity or the Nephilim are the closest thing to Anu in existence. Yeah, they're the recombination of the once together, now separate things. It's actually also really interesting to see how Lilith seems to have genuine emotions about some things, but she's also astonishingly cold-blooded. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, we didn't really even get to act two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're definitely going to have to do another show, man, because we, we're still on act one. There's the there's so much here, right? Like, And that's one of the more fascinating things about Diablo 4 uh, and is just that how much story is actually being thrown into it. Uh, not to like put a too fine of a point on it, but when you compare it to Diablo 1, Diablo 2, and Diablo 3... Like while Diablo three had more story than the other ones and Diablo two had more story than Diablo one, this is the most concentrated set of story that we've ever received in game. In fact, most of Diablo's two story came from the Sin War books and and the books that were released uh, after the game was out. Uh, Diablo three, a lot of the stuff that was not contained in the game was done through like the book of Cain and, and a lot of other publication that was done outside, whether it was comics or, or anything else. And there were Diablo comics. There absolutely were. 
uh, here Diablo four is almost doing kind of the thing that we, at least on the show talk about a lot, which is bringing all of that story into a playable experience for players, which makes the game feel more robust, more immersive. As far as the world goes, it still has that core gameplay loop of beat up the bad guy, get the cool, shiny object, wear the cool, shiny object. till you beat up the next bad guy and get the next shiny (laughs) object. That, that gameplay loop is still there, but while you're doing it, you're helping the scared ghost that's trying to find its resting place while things are trying to consume its, its essence or did, you, did you guys, I, I, I'm sorry to break in, but did you guys go to Northern Scotland? You know, maybe I don't think oh, I did. Man. Did did you find uh, the, it, the town with like all the, the walking corpses around? Oh it? yes. The wet, the wet town where everybody gets drowned. Yeah. Yeah. Did you love that? Uh, I don't remember that there's another town like that later that has a bunch of drowned around it, but it's definitely later. Yeah. Um, when you go to Northern Scotland, uh, Scotland, there's the, the town that I think it's the same town, maybe just different quests, but there's a whole big story about this, which turns out to basically be a metaphor of this woman who's just furious with her mother because <laughs> her mother would, you know, turned into a monster essentially. And you're sitting there going, wow, Yet more convoluted, you know, parent-child relationships, Diablo 4, huh? You going there? There's, like, these stories could be the heart of a different game. Like, just this Mm -hmm. side quest could be a whole game about how, you know, you're fighting these, like, you know, aquatic corpses who are people being tempted into, you know, succumbing to the the Leshy's influence, blah, blah. And I'm sitting going, they, they did this in, like, five quests. Five astonishingly fraught quests. And in the end, it has as close to a happy ending as Diablo 4 gets in that (laughs) you successfully destroy the thing. And now this woman has to live with the fact that she hates her mother Mm -hmm. and, and, and now is like, you know, I've done it. I've destroyed her, but that was my mother. And it's just like this moment of, you know, this is what, even if you're a good person or even if you're not a good person, but you're just a person, somebody who's just like living on a farm, living their life, these events happened that just destroyed everything. And the world is bleeding. Sanctuary is bleeding. So in a way, maybe Lilith is right. Although she does things when you you get through those quests and you're like, oh my God. But the points she makes are valid. She doesn't lie. She manipulates people by not lying mm-hmm. to them. She's kind of like Zoltan Cool on crack. Because remember how Zoltan Cool <laughs> never lied to you? He was always telling you the truth, even though he was obviously spinning it. Lilith just make, looks and goes amateur and just, you know, just starts talking. And by the end of it, you're like, yeah, and Arius did do that to us. Like, and it's, it's astonishing I mean, to watch. Yeah. She's, she's very smooth about it. She never, she never appears to lie to you and she makes everything she says sound very convincing. And in many ways, she's right because we know that the Lords of Hell want to destroy Sanctuary. We know that the angels don't care. The angels are not going to be there to protect us. We have to fend for ourselves. We have to be strong enough to fend for ourselves. She makes really good points. Is this the right way to become strong enough to fend for ourselves? I don't know, but I also don't know how we're going to fend off the Lords of Hell because... We've never managed to do it. Yeah, even uh, Morath admits that evil doesn't get beat really in this setting. It just yeah, you, you can do whatever you want. You can put them in whatever soul stone you want. You can just—they're going to come back. You just have to accept it. And there is definitely some interesting implications of that as we're going to move later on. And the next episode, I hope we can get to through X two, three, and four. 
uh, because there's some really good stuff there. Although two does feel like you can get through it a little bit faster than one. One feels like it is exceptionally robust for the for the sheer purpose of world building, which I'm grateful for, actually. Um, but yeah, so I think that's going to do it. Unless there's anything else you guys want to add in for the epilogue or act one right now. All right. Well, then, folks, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means that this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to this podcast, a better chance of having your question answered on our podcast or the queue in an ads-free site experience. Uh, we do want to thank you for joining us on this episode. If you have questions for this or any of our podcasts, be sure to send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify what show it's for in the subject line so that we can make sure that they get to the right place. If you want to hit us up on Discord, we have two channels set aside. Uh, one for our everyday supporters, the ones that aren't supporting us on Patreon. You can just send us in at the Patreon Q and podcast questions. If you are supporting us on Patreon, you can also hit us up on our Patreon Q and podcast questions channel, where we tend to look for our questions and themes first as a way of saying thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep the lights on. Uh, but with that, folks, we'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.